Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Mark 14 takes us now to the last week of Jesus' life, the events that are going to lead up to his uh, arrest and trial before the Jewish authorities. The chapter begins by what appears to be another sandwich. A sandwich is where Mark tells a story, and then he interrupts that story with another story, and then he goes back to the first story and kind of completes it. We saw a a sandwich in Mark chapter 5 where a little girl was sick and dying, and then as Jesus goes on his way to take care of this little girl, a woman with a bleeding problem comes and touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed. Then Jesus goes back and uh, raises the little girl because she happened to have died in the meantime. In both those stories, it was about a woman, about a woman uh, uh, who was 12, one who had been bleeding for 12 years, and the little girl who was 12 years old. In both stories, the woman and the little girl are referred to as daughter. And in both stories, we're talking about Jesus touching that which is unclean. He touches the woman who had a bleeding problem, and he touches the little girl who had died. Now in Mark chapter 14, we have uh, what appears to be this inside this plot, the plot of the chief priests and the authorities to, to seize Jesus and to kill him. And then that story is interrupted then with the story of the anointing of Jesus by a sinful woman in verses 3 through 9. Verses 10, verse 10 then picks up and says, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him uh, to them. The story in the middle then is the story of the sinful woman, and it tells us that the proper response to Jesus The proper response to Jesus is to worship him as the new temple. Verse 3 says that while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? Why, for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed uh, to me. For the poor you always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do to them good, but you do not always have me. She had done what she could, for she anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of her in memory of her. Now Mark tells us that this happened at the home of Simon the leper. We're going to have to assume that Mark's readers knew who Simon the leper was and who this home was. This woman has an alabaster jar of of perfume, very expensive. It's an aromatic oil from a root native to India. 300 denarii is a a year's wages. It's a substantial portion of money. And it may very well have been the woman's dowry, uh, uh, something she was given to her by her father so that if she became widowed or left on her own or divorced and set, set aside and uh, having no male to care for her, she could have at least a year's worth of wages uh, to, to see for her well-being. Now, according to the Gospel of John, it was Judas who actually leveled the complaint, John tells us, because he was stealing from the treasury. Her worship, however, demonstrates for us something in, very intriguing, and that is excess in worship might actually be appropriate. Sometimes we look at elaborate buildings and elaborate things in the church and we think, oh, that's a waste, we should have given that money to the poor. But Jesus is worthy of our worship, regardless of how excessive it might be. Jesus views this particular act, however, as a, as a preparation of his burial. 
Uh, he's not indifferent to the needs of the poor at all. He says, in fact, the poor you always have with you. Now, that statement itself, by the way, has been misunderstood. Some take it as, well, there's nothing you can do about the poor because we're always going to have the poor with us. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus is probably even chiding them or rebuking them in this statement. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that there should be no poor among you. The ideal state for the people of God is that the poor are cared for. There's justice and equity for all. There's, there's no more inequity in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't mean that there can't be the wealthy. It just means that the poor have at least the minimum that they need. Uh, in the book of Acts, we see that there was no needy person among them. In the early church, in Acts 4.34, they were fulfilling the role of God's people. So when Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, he doesn't mean, hey, you know, you guys can take care of the poor anytime. He's probably chiding them, rebuking them, saying, because you have not done your job, because you have not looked after the poor and the widows and the orphan and the needy, you're always going to have them with you, but you're not always going to have me. Uh, then we find out that Judas decides to betray Jesus. And verse 11 says the chief priests were glad when they heard this and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking how he was going to betray him at an opportune time. Now verse 12 and following then tell us about the Last Supper. And again we have probably another little sandwich technique. In verse 17, uh, through 21, it talks about the betrayal of the disciples. Jesus at least predicts the, bet uh, the betrayal of the disciples. Verses 22, 22 through 26 describes the Last Supper, Jesus' sacrifice of his own. It's going to contrast the unfaithfulness of the disciples. And then in verses 27 through 31, it describes the disciples all fleeing and walking away from Jesus. Their betrayal is predicted, the Last Supper, and their betrayal is actually enacted. The first day, it tells us in verse 12, of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, he said to his disciples, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will, carry, will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. In the same way that Jesus had some measure of secrecy in providing a, a, a donkey for him to travel into Jerusalem, there also appears to be this level of secrecy. You're going to go into the city and you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, you may first think, well, that's, you know, how, how are you going to know which man? But the reality is, is that men didn't carry pitchers of water back in that day. This man would have stuck out. He would have been a, it's a prearranged signal by Jesus, most likely. Hey, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my disciples. You're going to carry a pitcher of water. My disciples are going to recognize you for carrying that pitcher of water, and I want you to take them into the place that we've, just, we've set aside for my Last Supper. Again, the secrecy might very well, uh, very likely be as a result of the fact that Jesus does not want Judas or others, apparently, to know where the Last Supper is going to take place, lest he be killed before his time. For Mark, him telling the story also, keeping uh, the identity of this, of this man and, and, and the place of the upper room secret, might well also indicate the fact that even at the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, the identity of, this, of these individuals might still have caused them to be in, un, in jeopardy. Verse 17 says that when evening had came, he, he went with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For just as the son, for the son of Man is to go, just as, as it is written of him. 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. When Jesus tells us that it's one of the disciples that's going to betray him, uh, notice he doesn't actually identify any one particular individual at all. It, his first indication is that it's one who is eating with me. And everyone, including Judas, said, surely not I. Note the disciples have no idea that it's Judas, which is a good indication that false prophets come to us even in sheep's clothing, and sometimes we don't recognize them as sheep at all. But notice also the self-centeredness of their response. Jesus is about to be betrayed. Uh, he's going to be betrayed to death, and their response is, well, it's not me. His second indication in verse 20 says, it's one of the twelve. But even then, it doesn't identify anyone in particular. His third indication, it's one who dips bread in the bowl with me, also doesn't necessarily identify anyone in particular because they're all eating from the same bowls. It might indicate one of two or three individuals sitting very, very close to Jesus. And if that's the case, it would be very intriguing because it would indicate that Judas has a some seat of some prominence in order to be able to dip in the same bowl as Jesus. Verses 22 through 25, now chapter 14. Jesus inaugurates communion, communion in the new covenant. Since while they were eating, he took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take it and eat. This is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the blood of the new covenant. In the, in the biblical world, a covenant is an agreement between two parties, uh, most often a king and his peoples. The significance, though, of making a covenant is that a covenant is always made with blood. This is the blood of the covenant. Verse 27, then, Jesus uh, said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me. Uh, all fall away because it is written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that you yourself this very night before a cock crows twice shall three times deny me. But Peter kept insistent, saying, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. Peter promises that he'll be faithful to Jesus despite Jesus' warnings of his unfaithfulness. Uh, it's a noble effort. It desire, you know, he earnestly desires that, that he remains faithful. Um, but here's the reality. Even if the great apostle Peter can fall despite his earnestness. How much weaker are we without the grace of God? In fact, we realize a few verses later that Peter was unable to keep watch even for one hour. Verse 32 then, Jesus goes off to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the uh, uh, western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Uh, if you go east of the, of the city of Jerusalem, you go down in the Kidron Valley, and as you go back up, uh, you're uh, coming upon the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives then sits to the east of Jerusalem, looking back to the west where you see the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Gethsemane itself means an olive press. Jesus leaves the disciples near the entrance to the olive press and ventures a little bit further. He takes Peter, James, and John, uh, verse 33 says, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Remember that phrase, keep watch, from chapter 13 that we had seen five times. Jesus tells the disciples, keep watch, be on your guard, be on the alert, take heed. And now he tells them, keep watch. Verse 35 says, he went a little bit beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He was saying, my Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays that 
if this hour, if it be possible, might this hour pass from him. Take this cup from me. Uh, hour and cup are used in an apocalyptic world for uh, the end times. Jesus knows, to some extent at least, what he's about to suffer, and he doesn't want to do it. It shows the humanity of Jesus. He doesn't want to go through with this, but Father, thy will be done. All prayer, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, is to be prefaced with, thy will be done. The prayer, by the way, is effectively answered with no. It's interesting. Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. And the Father apparently says, no. Jesus goes back later on and says, and, and continues to pray and says, Father, help me to be strong. Jesus returns to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter in verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Arise, let us go. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. If the disciples are to be warned to keep watching and praying that they may not come into temptation, then how much more so shall we? Three times Jesus finds them sleeping, and then the betrayer is at hand. Judas arrives, uh, along with a, an accompaniment of, of uh, Jewish soldiers. According to Rome, according to the Gospel of John, there might apparently have been Roman soldiers as well. It says in verse 43, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him, and lead him away under guard. We don't know why the, the signal of a kiss was used. It could have been that it was a late hour and quite dark, and maybe it was difficult for them to identify him, especially if Roman soldiers are involved. They've seen Jesus around the city most likely, but they probably couldn't identify him necessarily. So Judas identifies him with a kiss. It's possible that a kiss was a formal greeting at, the, at this time, and so, Peter's like, and so Judas is saying to the authorities, that's the one whom I greet. Nonetheless, they, they, they seize him. Verse 46 says, They laid hands on him and seized him, but a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the Gospel of John that that was Peter who did that and that the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus, of course, answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Note again, the desertion of the disciples. A certain young man was following him, verse 51 says, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Zechariah 13, verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. They all deserted him and fled. Even though all drank of the communion wine and they all pledged to die for Jesus, they all desert him nonetheless. Now, verse 53 through 72 describes Peter's trials and Peter's denials in Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. And again, we appear to have another sandwich. This time, verses 53 and 54 describe Peter's denials, but verses 55 through 65 describe Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And then verses 66 to 72 describes Peter's denials again. That means Jesus on trial before the Jewish authorities is sandwiched in the midst of Peter's denying of knowing, of, even knowing of Jesus. Jesus confessing the truth and suffering for it 
is the center, while Peter, denying even knowing Jesus, is the outside. Verse 53 says he was taken away to, to Caiaphas, or to the chief priest, who at that time was a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the uh, high priest from the years 18 to 36. He was actually the son-in-law of the high priest named Annas. Annas had been forced into retirement by the Romans, um, and so he's technically still the high priest, because once you're a high priest, you're always a high priest. But uh, according to the other Gospels, Jesus was taken to Annas first and later to Caiaphas. But Mark skips straight to Caiaphas. Members of the Sanhedrin are present. The Sanhedrin is the, the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, you have to understand, any trials that take place during the nighttime are actually illegal. The Sanhedrin was only allowed to meet in public, which required them to meet during the daytime. We're told in verse 54 that Peter followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting there with the officers and warming himself at the fire. According to the Gospel of John, John was known by the high priest. That's probably how he knows that Malchus is the man who had his ear chopped off. And so John perhaps got Peter and himself into the high priest's courtyard. The Sanhedrin now is looking for evidence to uh, uh, put Jesus to death, but they are having trouble because their witnesses are not agreeing with one another. Someone stood up and began to give false testimony, saying in verse 57, uh, and then verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And they did not even in this respect, and not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. This is going to be a problem for them. They, they need to have a witness who, who can testify against Jesus to give them some reason to give them, uh, for a capital charge. But the problem for the Jews was this. Whoever testifies against a person in a capital charge, if their testimony is found to be invalid, that person must suffer the same fate of the accused. So they can't have witnesses disagreeing with one another. That's going to be a problem. So they know that there's some charge against the temple. He said that um, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I'll, I'll build another made without hands. The reference to made with, ha with hands and build another one made without hands, of course, reminds us of the book of Exodus. And Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 2 as well says, uh, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands. Uh, in the book of Daniel, there's this, there's this statue that's built and the statue represents four kingdoms. But that statue is destroyed by a stone, the stone made without hands. Remember the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? The stone made without hands references something that, of divine origin, not of human-made. So he, he, he claimed something about the temple, but they couldn't agree. So the verse uh, 60 says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he made no answer. Of course, Jesus is Silent before uh, his accusers uh, reminds us of, of Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. The high priest now, Caiaphas, is going to ask him directly, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now the high priest has asked him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Uh, this is a, a, a way of, of essentially getting Jesus to convict himself, which is illegal in, in Jewish and in Roman courts. You can't make the, the, the accused uh, convict himself, but are you the Christ? Jesus says, I am. 
Matthew and Luke reply, have Jesus replying saying, well, you're the one who said so. But then he adds, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is likely a reference to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel says, I kept looking in my night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now the Jewish authorities realize what's been going on. According to the other Gospels, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man was often a reference used by the book, in the book of Ezekiel for a prophet himself. Uh, Ezekiel referred to himself as the Son of Man. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Jewish authorities didn't think much of it. Perhaps he's referring to himself as nothing more than a prophet. We might not agree with him, we might not like him as a prophet, but it's nothing serious. But now it's realized that Jesus' title of Son of Man is being used in the context of the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is one who is divine in origin, one who approaches the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Caiaphas, the high priest, tears his garments. He believes that Jesus' answer is blasphemous. And Jesus' claim to be the Messiah is now indeed blasphemous. So the Sanhedrin condemns him to death. Legal terminology being used here for a formal, sentence, a formal sentencing that has been passed. It says then uh, in verse uh, 64, You've heard the blasphemy. How does it sound to you? And they deserved it. They all condemned him to, to, to be deserving of death. Some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps uh, in the face. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, it refers to what's likely understood to be a reference to the Messiah himself. And it says, The Messiah will not judge by what he sees. In Isaiah 11, verse 3, He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will, he will not judge by what he sees. If you're the Messiah, they can blindfold him and prophesy because the, pro the Messiah will prophesy by, by, without even being able to see. Peter was, of course, below in the courtyard in verse uh, 66. One of the servant girls of the high priest came to him and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too are with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out on the porch and the maid saw him and he began to say once more to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and to swear, I don't know this man whom you are talking about. And immediately a cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to them, to him, Before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. In the Gospel of Mark, Peter's denials of Jesus is sandwiched between Jesus' confession of himself to be the Christ. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.